do you know why we feel obligated to keep some traditions while we let other traditions go? A few years ago, I remember one young man that came here to North River, and he was wearing a ball cap. And he entered into the worship space with his cap on. And as he did so, there was a man from an older generation who quietly walked up to him and kind of sternly said, take your hat off. Clash of two different generations and the way they look at some issues. Who was right? I'm not asking you to come up with with an answer to that. Here's another scenario. We just sang those words, raise a hallelujah. Uh, Several years ago, Sue and I were invited to attend a Handel and Haydn Society concert at Boston Symphony Hall. It was a performance of Handel's Messiah. And I'd heard the Messiah before, at least I thought I had. When I'd heard it uh, in a couple of different situations, what I didn't realize was there was act one and there was act two, and then at the the end of act two comes Uh, the hallelujah chorus, and it finished. And I didn't realize there was actually a part three that sometimes they do, and at the Handel and Haydn Society, they were gonna have all three parts. And when I'd heard the hallelujah chorus prior to that in the church that I grew up in, we all stood when we heard those words, Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings, and, and it was just powerful. But there in the playbill, for the Handel and Haydn Society was a little bit of the history of how that tradition had developed. Uh, The Messiah was written in 1741, and the next year, the Queen of England came to hear one of those performances, and they got to the end of section two where the Hallelujah Chorus hits, and thinking it was the final song and hearing those grand words, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, she stood, and so everybody stood with her, and there was a tradition that began to grow where people would stand for that marvelous song. But in the Handel and Haydn playbill, it asked all of the people who were in the auditorium that day to remain seated during the Hallelujah Chorus and explain some of the history and saying that the queen made a mistake, didn't intend to start that tradition which carried on. And so I remember when we got to that part, I heard those words, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I was one of those who couldn't sit during that and I stood during the whole thing. Then this past December, there was a group of us that ended up going to uh, the Boston Pops uh, Christmas um, concert. Symphony Hall, uh, many other songs, a lot of them were the the, uh, kind of fun winter carnival songs, but at one point they also had a rendition of the Hallelujah Chorus. And since I'd been through it before, and there were all the, the fun wintry songs, and then they just did the Hallelujah Chorus, not part, all of part one, not all of part two leading up to that, they also had in the playbill, you know, please remain seated during the Hallelujah Chorus. And this time I sat, and our, our whole group sat during that. But off in the distance, on the other part of the balcony, I noticed this one woman who was like I was years ago. She just couldn't sit during that song, there was a tradition within her that wouldn't let her do that. And I remember looking at her, the only one in the entire symphony hall that I could see anyway, standing, and I was thinking, you go, that, that, yeah, this is, this is good for you, you know, to be the one that goes against the tide. Again, that question, who was right? 
two clashing traditions side by side. These are all examples of clashing traditions. Now, you have traditions, I have traditions. We bring them with us. We have family traditions, we have New England traditions, we have American traditions as opposed to other countries. And sometimes we have our religious and denominational traditions. Knowing that traditions sometimes lead us into conflict, this helps prepare us for the clashing expectations that Jesus experienced in his dealings with Israel's religious leaders back in the first century. This morning, we're in week seven of our Journey with Jesus series. We're going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark. And I've titled this particular message, Hiding Behind Traditions. And we're going to look at why Jesus opposed some of the traditions of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that rise up here in Mark chapter seven, as well as a number of other areas of the Gospels. This is gonna take a little bit of, of uh, understanding to go back into the, to, to the background of where did this clash develop? Why is it that Jesus seems to be in such a different mindset than so many of the leading teachers of Israel? Here's the first observation. We need to work at understanding an old conversation whenever we talk about this. Verse five starts us off. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then he lowers the boom in verse eight. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Have you ever walked into a conversation that's already, already going on between two other people and as you walk in you realize, oh my goodness, there's something here I don't understand. There's a part of this conversation that I've been left out of and you're trying to piece together all of the missing parts. This is one of those situations. We walk into a conversation that begins here with Jesus and the Pharisees only to learn that this particular controversy has been building for years and years and years and finally comes to a head that day when the Pharisees come up and they start listening closely to Jesus. A Jerusalem contingent of Pharisees and teachers of the law had come to Galilee that day and they assumed that Jesus' disciples ought to keep teaching their traditions if they were really spiritual leaders. This is a backhanded way of saying that if Jesus was really a spiritual leader sent from God, then the Pharisees assumed that his disciples would keep the same traditions that they had been keeping because they were convinced they were right. Eddie Arnold, uh, a Nazarene pastor does a great job of explaining how this tension had been brewing for more than 600 years. There are a couple of dates that we need to have in mind and then a couple of groups that we need to understand. The first date is that Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 to 586 BC by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. This was the third time that Nebuchadnezzar had put a siege around Jerusalem. Babylon was the dominant power in that time and in that part of the world, 
And they intended to break the will of the kingdom of Judah and its kings once and for all. Each prior time that they had put a siege around the city of Jerusalem, which goes back to 605 BC, the people of Judah had weathered the attack, regrouped, and then formed new alliances with other nations in order to fend off the Babylonians. This time, Babylon wanted this to be over, and they took apart Jerusalem brick by brick. So Solomon's temple was destroyed, the city was burnt to the ground, and the best and brightest of all the leaders were carried off and taken to Babylon. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, think of Daniel and his three friends who were taken to the king's palace in Babylon, never to return home to Jerusalem. Two competing, well, I should say that never to return home until the next generation in 539, that's the second Um, dates. 539 BC was when Nehemiah was first allowed to come and rebuild the walls and then Ezra behind him. Along with these two dates, 587, 586, and 539 BC, are two competing spiritual schools of thought which developed during the exile period. We could call them the Isaiah group and the Ezra group. The Isaiah group focused on the writings of the prophet Isaiah who essentially wrote that God had allowed the nation to go through this exile period because they had forsaken their first love. They'd stopped loving God supremely and they dabbled with some of the other religions and brought idols into the temple and they neglected matters of biblical social justice like caring for the poor and the needy and the foreigner. They had also neglected to serve as a light for their nations believing that they alone were the one redeemable group by God. So Isaiah stressed the need for a spiritual reformation of the heart that would finally come in the days when the Messiah would show up on the earth. There would be an outpouring of God's spirit and there would be a change of hearts that would take hold in person after person and family after family. That's the first group, the Isaiah group. The Ezra group focused on a strict reading of Old Testament law. They wanted to prevent this kind of demise from ever happening again within the people of Israel. And so their answer to the problem was to pay very close attention to every jot and tittle of the law of Moses. They believed that if they obeyed every rule, every regulation, every commandment, that God would then accept them and bless their nation forever on the basis of their performance. By the time of Jesus, the Ezra group had become more dominant in the life and customs around the rebuilt temple and city of Jerusalem while both of these strains, both of these schools were still in operation. The scribes and the Pharisees took the lead in seeing that the traditions were built to keep the people of Israel from ever again straying so far that they would actually break the commands of the law. So all these traditions were built around the law so they would stumble over those first without breaking the commands. They had stringent laws about what a person could eat and how they should eat it. They had stringent laws about what they should wear and, and rules and regulations that would govern every part of every day. They even had rules and regulations about how to treat family members. And this fail-safe system, at least in their minds, had some 613 rules and regulations that were supposed to govern their everyday lives. Now, just think for a minute. 
Imagine that there are 613 laws, rules, and regulations that you have to master in order to figure out how to go about life every single day. Would that be enjoyable? Would it be confusing? Probably. Probably. Mark assumes that we understand all of this when he quotes Jesus saying these words, Isaiah was right. And then he calls them hypocrites. He was referring to a passage from Isaiah chapter 29 where Isaiah was predicting these words that there would be people who would be so busy doing the things of God, keeping the rules of God, at least as they understood them, that they would actually fail to give their hearts to God and they'd move far away from him. So Isaiah's words come ringing back that their hearts are far from God. Along with understanding the background, we have to realize the danger of hiding behind traditions. Verse nine takes us a little bit deeper into this. Mark writes and he says, and he, Jesus, continued. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you, notice the contrast here, but you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban. We've got to understand that concept and we'll get to that. And now Mark defines it a little bit for us. That is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. First, the term. Corban is a term in the Aramaic language, which is seldom used. It's the third language of the Bible. And our Bibles typically copy this term directly into the English without translating it. So it's an Aramaic word that shows up in our English Bibles. Mark explains it as meaning something that is devoted to God, a sum of money, a piece of property, some prized possession. Jesus used this practice of declaring something to be korban as one clear illustration of how the Pharisees often used one of their traditions to get around a timeless biblical obligation. What was the obligation? The obligation was one of the Ten Commandments which tells us to honor our father and mother. This implies that those who are younger have a financial obligation to provide care as best they can for elderly members of the family rather than just to let them struggle in, in those final years. I have been pastoring here long enough that they know, I know there are a number of people who've been going through this with, with your parents where all of a sudden things flip. We move from those years where our, our parents take care of us and provide for us and then all of a sudden the time comes when there's frailty or sickness or there's some difficulty that's entered and you find yourself on the caring end on the other side. And some of you have gone to great lengths and, and heroically helping to care for elderly parents. And it's a wonderful thing to, to watch and yet sometimes it's, it's quite challenging. The Ezra group held that any amount of money or piece of property or valued possession that was set apart beforehand as a gift to God to be used for God only would not count in the, in the equation of what they were expected 
to provide in terms of care for their elderly parents. It's a way of kind of getting around the expectations that are there in the, in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus let them know that they had elevated their own tradition above the word of God. Notice a few things about Jesus in these comments. First of all, we notice that Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. He refers to it twice as the Word of God. So he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture, the Jewish Scriptures, and he uses this high exalted phrase, it's the Word of God. Notice second, that Jesus did not view man-made religious traditions as equal to Scripture. Notice third, that Jesus had a high view of the Ten Commandments. And he felt that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the expectations of God's people throughout the ages. And here in the New Testament era, Jesus is speaking of the need for us to lift up these Ten Commandments, especially this one, about how we regard those who are older within our community or within our families. Now, every church and every generation develops traditions. It's just the way we learn to do things. Sometimes it has to do with the way that things were handed down to us. But we must be clear that traditions are never sacred. They're often valuable, they're often good, they often teach us a lot, but they're never sacred. I'll give you an example of some of these. When I went to a seminary and was working on my master's degree in the early 1980s, there was one professor who I revered. I actually still have some of his books that he gave me in my library. And he walked up to me one day, and I had, a, I had a big, dark mustache and longer hair, and he said, young man, I have some advice for you. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to give me a real piece of wisdom. <laughs> and his advice was, facial hair does not belong in pastoral ministry. <laughs> I thought, where was that coming from? I couldn't find anything like that in Scripture. In fact, you find descriptions of some of the biblical characters who had big, full beards and things like that. But here is this tradition. Uh, years ago, Western missionaries insisted on forcing Western dress codes on other cultures. That was done so greatly in the 1800s that there are still literary writers today that ass who assume that that's what missionaries do today. They abandoned that practice a long, long time ago and got much more culturally savvy. But that was a huge mistake, and in some ways, the church is still paying for its reputation around that. When we started North River 30 years ago, I still wore a suit and tie every Sunday. And most of the men who came to our church would often wear a tie or a suit or a suit jacket. But something happened over time where the culture shifted and we became much more casual as a society. And so we started to say, let's reflect our community rather than being different. All right, I made a conscious choice not to wear jeans today so that I wasn't defending my, my current practice of the day. If you're tempted to say, well, wait a minute. I think there's a good argument to be made that we should put on our very best when we're gathering in the presence of God. I would rather argue with you the other side of that, that that may well be a tradition that fits within our time and within a culture where many of us have access or resources or relative wealth enough to be able to afford finer looking clothes. But we certainly aren't gonna turn away anybody who only has jeans to wear, right? 
we would say that, that, that would clearly be wrong. Just an illustration of these things. All right, so here's the third principle. If the first is that we have to understand we're walking into an old conversation that by the time of Jesus' ministry was some 600 years old, and we've explored the danger of hiding behind traditions, here's the next danger. The danger of outside-in approaches to spirituality. Verse 14 takes us deeper into this. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that defiles you. There in these three verses, Jesus has put the problem in a very succinct statement. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law took an outside-in approach to spirituality. So they had rules about what you could touch or special washings that would make one ceremonially clean. The point of difficulty on that day was that they noticed that as Jesus was out in the fields with his disciples and they sat down in the fields for their lunch, they didn't wash their hands. Stop for a minute. We have to think through what's going on there and how we react to this within our culture and our time. How many of you were raised in homes where your mom taught you wash your hands before you eat dinner? Just about everybody, right? Is that a good thing? Yes! You know why it's a good thing? For hygiene, to wash off the germs of the day. Uh, we, we fight colds. Whether you know it or not, I stand out here and shake hands after each service. And you know what I do after each service? I go and wash my hands with hot water and lots of soap because after shaking 300 or 400 hands a day, I could be the sickest person in the room. I don't want that. So this was not about hygiene. In fact, they weren't washing their hands with hot water and soap. There's nothing like that mentioned. Instead, the tradition of the Pharisees was they would hold their fingertips up before a meal and then somebody would pour water over their hands and, and so that it would flow down to their wrists so they'd have an angle like this. It had to be at least an eggshell and a half worth of water. They'd gone to such a precise level that they'd measured out how much water is enough. And then each of these Pharisees or teachers of the law would take their fist from the other hand and they would kind of mash it into their, their palm as if to say, if there's any debris there or if there's any sand or dirt, we're, we're gonna push that aside. And then they would do the other one the same way. Then they would hold their hands up this way and somebody would pour water the other way so it would run down into their wrists and then off their hands. There's no scrubbing involved in that. There's no soap. It's just a ceremonial thing. And they had different routines, what they would do with cups and saucers and with um, you know, various utensils that they would use. It was not about hygiene. It was about a view that says you're more spiritually clean if you go through these steps. They had great concerns about who you could touch, who you could associate with, and they believed if you touched anyone who did not match their traditions, that made you unclean. Just think about how Jesus must have driven them absolutely crazy by touching lepers and sick people and blind people and lame people. The assumption of the day was that if you had one of these maladies, it was because you had done something sinful in your life and this was a direct cause and effect relationship. And here's Jesus so often as he would touch 
as he would heal, he would touch people. Outside-in approaches leave us trapped in a performance mentality. Tim Keller explains in his book, King's Cross, which is a collection of his sermons from the Gospel of Mark, he says that this traps Christians in the mindset of thinking, if I just read my Bible and pray every day, I will be more worthy of God's love and he will bless me more. What's wrong with that statement? Is it a bad thing to urge people to read their Bible every day? No. Is it a bad thing to want people to pray every day? No. Is it a bad thing to urge people to do something good or something kind towards somebody else every day? No. So the front half of the equation is all sound. It's the back half of the equation where the fallacy comes in. There's an if-then fallacy built into that statement. And the back half says, if I do these things, then God will consider me more worthy of his love. That is the the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ says there is nothing that you can do to make yourself worthy or more worthy than somebody else. In fact, Jesus came at the point when we were unworthy. If we use biblical language, it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he came because he loved us anyway. Does he want us to read the Bible, to pray, to be kind to other people? Yes, but not in order to make ourselves worthy of the love of God, but rather to enjoy the fellowship of God in doing his kingdom work and drawing near to him in the process. Does that make sense to you? When Christianity gets away from the gospel, it becomes a performance-oriented religion. Do this, do that, do the other thing, and God will reward you. But if you don't, there's something bad about you. That makes all of our spiritual practices guilt-driven, like I have to do this or God won't love me. And that's dangerous. The Pharisees had bought into that, and that idea continues to come back in a number of ways in our day. Now, Don't just leave this in the Christian realm. Sometimes secular people do this too. After World War II, there were a number of people who had thought, we live in such an enlightened age, an enlightened society, where where people who are are beneficiaries of the Renaissance and all this technology and all this intellectual growth, and they had a hard time reckoning with the presence of that kind of evil in the world. And they had no way to describe it because they had basically come up with this assumption that people are generally good in their own eyes and before God. And they didn't know how to answer the problem of the kind of evil that showed up in the Holocaust and in the desire to destroy all of Europe and the Jewish people in particular. That same kind of disillusionment rose again after 9-11. There are a number of intellectuals within our society who said, we're we're beyond all this. We're, We're too bright, we're too good, we're too smart. This kind of evil doesn't exist in our world. And when it breaks through, people are depressed. They don't know how to respond. The principle from Jesus is this that nothing outside you can defile you spiritually, but it is the internal matters of the heart that reveal 
sometimes the evil and the sickness that's within us, the attitudes of the heart, the things that we say, the words that can cut so deeply are what he was concerned about first. Sometimes in Christian circles, there can be a great focus to want to fix all of the ills of the world and try to change people by controlling their behavior and then hope that they get the gospel. It's exactly backwards of the way that Jesus works. Jesus changes the software of the heart, which then little by little begins to reshape the attitudes and the functions and the behavior that we have in the way that we live. Every time we get mad at our secular society for not doing things the way that a Christian should think or do things or say things, we actually run into this controversy and we get ourselves locked in forgetting that Jesus changes the heart first. And when the Holy Spirit gets inside and when when he begins to little by little reshape the way that we think, behavior follows, but behavior doesn't precede spiritual change. Does that make sense to you? That's the way God works. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. So Jesus goes on in verse 20. He says, what comes out of you is what defiles you. For from within, out of your hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you. Why did Jesus then declare, in the midst of this debate, that now food sources that had once been off limits for Jewish people were now clean? What he was doing was applying this Jesus principle that nothing outside of you can defile you spiritually. And he was also pointing them to messianic fulfillment. Jesus never came to abolish the law or the commands But the key to understanding what he was doing has to do with why these laws were there in the first place. The dietary laws did not make the Jewish people better than the other nations around them. But the dietary laws and some of the customs about their clothing were all there in order to point them toward an expectation that the Messiah was coming and that they were a different group of people who were looking forward to that and they would be a light to the Gentile nations, all of the non-Jewish people in order to help them look forward to the day when the Messiah would come. And Jesus was teaching them that now that he had come, now that the Messiah had arrived, the need for these practices had ended. They'd fulfilled their purpose. It wasn't that he was saying, I reject them. He was saying their purpose was fulfilled, and so you're free to live in a different way. You need to understand this because there are people who will come and say, you Christians, you think that you're trying to be consistent, but you know what you really do? You pick and choose of which, the law, which of the laws in the Old Testament you will obey and which ones you'll just ignore. And what they don't understand is this principle of messianic fulfillment that comes from Jesus himself, where he says, no, 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 no. The Christians in this modern age, they're not just picking and choosing they're released from some of them because the purpose has been fulfilled in some of these commands that were given long ago. This is why you and I can have different kinds of uh, material, whether it's cotton and wool, in the same garment. 
The Old Testament people were not allowed to do this. This is why we can eat certain foods that were always off limit for people on a kosher diet. Because Jesus is saying, they don't make you holy, these practices. They don't make you more spiritually valuable. And they don't impress God in a way that makes you more worthy of his love. They were all designed to point the people of Israel to the role that they played in being special until the day that the Messiah would come because the Messiah would come from their people. And so Jesus makes a declaration that all of those foods were now clean. Once the Messiah comes, everything changes, and Jesus has come. So here's our big, big idea for this morning. I want you to know where this is coming from. Loving God leads us to abandon our traditions whenever they keep us from becoming more like Jesus. Four challenges that I believe that we have in light of how we evaluate traditions. Here's the first one. Love God. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? They were trying to trap him a little bit, but he says, oh, that's an easy one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, this is the first and greatest of all the commandments. So we start by loving God, putting God above all else. Here's the second challenge. Love others. Love people. As soon as that first command starts to sink in, Jesus says, and let me tell you about the second greatest commandment. That one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, neither of these commands were made up by Jesus. They're already buried in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In some cases, they were repeated. And now he adds commentary, and he says, all the law and the prophets, in other words, the entire Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. So, put this in context. Jesus tells us that the greatest of all the commandments that should guide us is to love God. The second greatest is to love people. How we love people as Christians is informed by how we love God first. There's a big debate today in our society about what it means to love other people. And the biggest difference between the way that Christians talk about loving people and the way that our secular society talks about loving people is that Christians start from a position of loving God first and his truth that impacts what we believe is best in the way that we give our love to other people. Love for God always informs the way that we love other people when we get this balance right. That gives us the ability to move on to the third challenge, to constantly examine our traditions. Are our traditions our traditions just because they're ours and they're comfortable and we like them? Or are they what God wants? Jesus says these stinging words in verse eight to the Pharisees. You have let go of the commands of God and are building on human traditions. As you and I evaluate how we live out our faith in the midst of a changing world and decades ahead of us where more change will come. This is a tremendous principle because we never want to get caught in that area where our traditions are trying to nullify the word of God or be greater than the word of God. And then one final challenge. Abandon traditions when they get in the way of becoming more like Jesus. Romans 8.28 includes this powerful statement. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Don't get hung up on the concept here of foreknowledge and predestination. We'll be here all day talking about that one. The thing we can agree on, though, is however we work out our understanding of foreknowledge and predestination, the direction of that is very clear in this verse that the purpose of God is that he wants each and every Christ follower to become more and more like Jesus. That's what he wants to do with you. That's what he wants to do with me. So, if our traditions ever get in the way of us becoming more like Jesus, this gets real easy. Which part of that equation are we going to dump? The tradition, not the goal of becoming more like Jesus. The tradition, not the scriptures that lead us to Jesus. And what Jesus is helping us do through this conflict with the Pharisees is to navigate our way through periods of great change. And this is a great service to you and me. And we can boil it down to this one statement. Loving God leads us to abandon our traditions whenever, not every time, but whenever they keep us from becoming more like Jesus. I hope that one day when somebody writes the story of what's been happening here at North River over decades and decades of time, that maybe they'll be able to look at literally the hundreds and thousands of people who flowed through this church and say, you know, there was one impact that North River had, that people were becoming more like Jesus the longer they stayed together. What an awesome reality that will be. Let's pray. Father God, I have one simple prayer for our congregation today that you would make us wise and that you would give us such clarity about the way that we read and understand the words of Jesus that you would make us more like him in ways that other people can notice and in ways that begin to change the world one heart at a time. Let it start with us today. In his name, amen.